Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 16 through 23, but our focus this, this morning will be on verses 19 to 23. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do ask for help in opening up this text this morning. Father, there are glorious truths in this text. We ask for help in understanding them. We ask for the help of the Spirit in, in seeing these things and applying them to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue this morning looking at, our, looking at this, this, this prayer of Paul for the Ephesian saints. Paul's not writing a prayer, but rather he is telling them how he prays for them. And let me take just a moment to speak to the context so that we don't lose sight of what Paul is saying here. This is our third sermon in this, uh, this aspect of the prayer, so let us look at this. Paul told the Ephesian Christians that he was praying for them to, to know God better, to know Him more fully. He then moves on to say that he was praying for God to open the eyes of their hearts. In other words, he was praying that the Holy Spirit would illuminate their hearts to the truth. And again, as I've noted multiple times, he, he did not pray for the eyes of their minds to be opened, but rather the eyes of their hearts. And this is significant. As in ancient culture, the, the, the heart represented much of who a person was, the, the seat of the thoughts and of the will, the, the disposition, the presuppositions, the, the biases that a person has. So Paul is praying for the Holy Spirit to remove whatever bias they had that would cause them to not be open to God's truth. And he was also praying that the Holy Spirit would take the truth and impress it upon their hearts in a way that is convincing and convicting and life-changing. And Paul desired for the eyes of their hearts to be open to three specific things. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, that this should really grab our attention. That the fact that Paul does not say, I am praying for God to open the eyes of your heart to all truth is, is significant. 
But he isolates three specific things, which indicates how important these specific truths are in the Christian life. The first thing he wanted their eyes to be open to was the fact that they have hope in God. He wanted them to know what is the hope to which God had called them. He desired for them to know experientially, not just intellectually, the hope that they have in Christ. And again, as we've, we've saw, a, a hopeless Christian is a miserable Christian, an unproductive Christian. And the Ephesian saints were probably suffering much for their faith. So, so what they needed to keep going faithfully was an expectation of good to come, and that is hope. Paul desired not that they simply grasp this concept in their heads only, but in their hearts, that they would be convinced without a shadow of doubt. And secondly, Paul desired the eyes of their hearts to be opened so that they would know what are the riches of their glorious inheritance. We saw a couple of weeks ago that Paul wanted them to be convinced that they indeed were rich with a glorious inheritance. And here he is praying that the Holy Spirit would illuminate their hearts to understand this truth more fully and to impress that truth upon their hearts in such a way that they would have no doubt that they are rich in Christ. And now we look at the third thing Paul desires the eyes of their hearts to be open to. Verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Paul wanted the Ephesian Christians to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards or in Christians. What a statement. The immeasurable greatness of God's power in or towards believers. Perhaps a clearer way to word this in English would be to say, what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power working within and for the lives of Christians? Paul desired for these believers to know that the power of God is working within their very lives. And this power that is working in their lives is immeasurably, incomparably great. Now this statement should cause us to stop and ask the question, why is Paul dealing with the concept of power? Why do we need to know this? Why why is this an important truth for the believer? Why do Christians need to be convinced that that the immeasurable greatness of God's power is working towards them, working within them? What is so important about this power? Why does this matter to the Christian life? Let me give you several reasons why this matters. Number one, these Ephesian saints probably felt powerless in in a very physical sense. Ian Hamilton puts it this way, if there were one thing these Christians in Ephesus felt they lacked, it was probably power. They were few in number and were probably marginalized. Possibly even some of them had been disinherited for their faith. They lacked numbers. They were the outcast of society, not the cool people. Nobody wanted to be like them. 
Some of them had probably lost resources as they turned to Christ, which meant they were now physically destitute. They were outcast without resources. They were absolutely powerless in a pagan city with a pagan ruler. How do you be faithful in such a situation? How do you go on being faithful when your beliefs make you the powerless outcast in society? How do you live in obedience to Christ, which means opposition to the world when the world seems powerful and you sense your, your lack of power? How do you stand before ungodly rulers and refuse to recant your faith when you feel powerless? How do you try to go on being faithful, building the church, evangelizing the lost when, when you feel weak and powerless in that society? What is the solution to this? The solution is to have the Holy Spirit illuminate their hearts to know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe. We need the Holy Spirit to impress upon our hearts the truth that the greatness of God's power is in fact at work in our lives. Though we, be, we may be marginalized in society and, and maybe even persecuted, we are still able to live faithfully and even advance His kingdom, not because of our own power, but because of the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us. Throughout history, Christians have been able to thrive under the worst of physical circumstances. Unable to be broken. Persecutors unable to break their spirit. Christians have been able to stay faithful and continue evangelizing under the threat of severe persecution and even painful martyrdom. And repeatedly throughout history, wicked rulers have tried to squash and exterminate the church, but no matter how hard they have tried, Christians have remained faithful and even continued to fulfill the Great Commission which is why we are here today. But how did they do that? How were they able to stay faithful in those difficult circumstances? The immeasurable greatness of God's power working in their lives. Dear friends, the enemy wants you to believe that we are too weak and powerless to remain faithful to Christ. He wants you to feel so powerless that, that you just give in and, and renounce your faith right now. That the entire world is in opposition to you right now. Why don't you just quit? Just renounce your faith. You can't fight this. The enemy wants this very church at this very moment to feel too weak and powerless to be sought and light in our community. And though we are weak and powerless in and of ourselves, we have the immeasurable greatness of God's power working in our lives. But also, these Ephesian saints probably felt powerless in a, in a spiritual sense. Sproul says sometimes believers feel so impotent 
They see themselves as spiritual failures because the power of the flesh is so great, the temptations of this world so overwhelming, and their progress so slim. How many can relate to this? You feel powerless. Perhaps you feel powerless in your marriage. You look at the difficulties and you say, I'm powerless to do anything with this. I'm powerless to respond faithfully to this. How many at this very moment feel powerless against certain sins in your life? Perhaps you do well resisting temptation in some areas, but there is a sin or two that has absolutely mastered you and you know that you need to mortify this sin, but you feel absolutely powerless against it. Perhaps the temptations of this world seem so strong to you and you succumb to them so often that your failure has to resist has made you feel absolutely powerless against this, against this temptation. You can't fight your flesh. Or perhaps you do know that you've been given a new heart so, so that your nature has been changed, but, but lately the desires of your flesh have been winning the, the battles against the Spirit. And this failure has you thinking that you are powerless in fighting your flesh. And perhaps there are people this morning who are discouraged by their lack of spiritual growth. You, you thought perhaps you would be much farther ahead spiritually at this point in your life and you feel like an absolute failure, unable to, to get to where you should be because you don't have the power to do so. In all of these cases, the world, the flesh, and the devil want you to feel absolutely powerless against temptation. Satan says, why resist? You are powerless. You might as well stop fighting temptation because you don't have the power to resist. If you fight it, you're simply going to have tension and it's going to make you more miserable. Just give in. Why trouble yourself by fighting these battles? Just give in and enjoy sin because you are powerless against it anyways. What better way to fight a Christian than to make him think he's too weak to defend himself. Well, that, that, I mean, that's, a, that's a brilliant strategy. I just intimidate you enough so that you don't fight me because you think you can't win. But, but this is what the flesh does. This is what the world does. This is what Satan does. He says you can't win. Just give in and stop fighting. You know, every time you try to resist that temptation, you, you eventually give in. So why don't you just give in from the very beginning so that you can avoid all of that confrontation? So that you can avoid all of that difficulty? Dear friends, what does the believer who feels spiritually impotent need most? He needs the Holy Spirit to impress upon his heart the truth that the greatness of God's power is at work in his life. We are not alone spiritually. 
God's power is immeasurably great. And that power is at work in the lives of Christians to sanctify them and make them more like Christ at this very moment. God has not left you to yourself in your spiritual journey. He has not left you to yourself in sanctification. He has has given you the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit has indwelt you to help you, to assist you. We have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that the immeasurably great power of God is working to help us resist temptation and grow as believers at this very moment. We don't need to be discouraged and given to temptation thinking that we cannot resist. We need to go on fighting, resisting, understanding that the immeasurable greatness of God's power is at work in our very lives to help us in this way. We are not alone. But also, these Ephesian Christians were living in a city that was given to occultic practices. Sproul points out that Ephesus and its environs were a hotbed of occultic arts and strategies for placating and manipulating invisible spiritual powers. Again, we know from the book of Acts just how occultic this city was. They became Christians and they had a book burning. 50,000 pieces of silver was the the value of the amount of books that they burned. And, 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 And some estimate this to be in the millions of dollars worth of books on magic. And this was not the type of magic we think of today where you say hocus pocus and you you do some optical illusion. This was demonic, occultic activity. S.M. Bob points out that magical practices of various sorts, divination, incantations, charms, amulets, astrology, etc., were an important part of daily affairs everywhere and at all times in antiquity, but especially at Ephesus. And he says it's sometimes hard to imagine how much of daily life was engaged in warding off dangers from dark, unseen forces. And history tells us just how superstitious they were in trying to protect themselves from evil spirits. Now I want you to imagine how many of these new converts would feel giving up all of those practices that they thought warded off evil spirits their entire life lives. They believed evil spirits to be powerful. And now all of a sudden they were no longer longer performing their rituals that they thought kept them safe from these dark spirits. Were they now powerless? Were they vulnerable? Were they exposed? Not only that, but, 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 but now they embraced a religion which was against their cultic Practices, would those evil spirits then retaliate against them? I mean, think of the the consequences of fearing that you are exposed to evil spirits because you are no longer warding them off like you have your entire life. Imagine the temptation to embrace syncretism. And it was a very real temptation, even in the early church. They were warning at Ephesus to not embrace syncretism. Why? Because there's a fear. Perhaps 
We should combine Christianity with occultic practices so that we can be Christians but continue to ward off evil spirits the way we always have just in case Christianity doesn't do it. We think that way, don't we? Such fear could have grave consequences on the Christian life. Imagine being, being bound to that sort of slavery in your mind that, that you have to do all of these superstitious things. Otherwise, evil spirits out there may get you. And perhaps many of them feared the power of Satan and his demons. Maybe we say today, well, we're not really afraid of that. I think that's generally true, but it's not because we don't believe that Satan is powerful. It's because we don't think spiritually. We, we think physically. We, we look at the things happening in our, in our culture, things like abortion and the, the homosexuality and transgenderism, and we say, oh yeah, these are political issues. No, there's a spiritual warfare taking place. There's a reason why in this very book, to this very group of people in Ephesus, Paul wrote in chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Satan and his demons are at work in our culture at this very moment. The fight to keep abortion legal it's a spiritual battle. Believe me, there are, there are dark forces working hard to keep that practice alive and healthy in our country. There are dark spiritual powers seeking to push the normalization of homosexuality and transgenderism in our culture. There are dark spiritual forces causing our children to mutilate their bodies by trying to change genders that, dear friends, is a spiritual battle. This is not a battle of conservative versus liberal. This is a battle of, of God versus Satan. This is a spiritual warfare. And when we really begin to think of that, when you really begin to, to think to yourself that, that everything that is happening in our culture is not just natural, it's not political, it's not just a difference of opinions, it's actually a spiritual battle. People can begin to fear. Wow. Satan must be pretty powerful. He's doing a good job in our country. He must have some persuasion. Because look at what we've become. When we consider the fact that, that there are evil spirits at work pushing these things, it can become easy to fear. Can we actually withstand evil powers? If they become directed towards us? If we are fighting against these powers in our culture by proclaiming the gospel, won't we become a target for, for Satan and his demons? I mean, after all, if, if this is Satan's territory and you go in there with the gospel proclaiming truth, you're waging war on him. What if he turns on you? Perhaps we should compromise so that we don't become a target. Maybe if we allow homosexuality into the church, Satan won't feel like we are his enemy and, and he won't fight against us. Or perhaps we should just keep our religion within the four walls of this church building so that Satan does not think we are fighting against him in our culture. But perhaps that way he will leave us alone, right? Satan does have power. 
But if we fear him, we are on the road to compromise, just like some did by embracing syncretism. So how do we fight against fears of of Satan and, and evil spirits? Well, we need to be fully persuaded of the immeasurably great power of God that is working towards us who believe. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. If there are so many powers working against God's people, how confident can we really be of the hope to which we have been called. If there are such powers working against us at every moment, yes, we believe in an inheritance, but how, how confident can we be that we will make it to our inheritance? How confident can we be that the flesh, that the world or the devil won't snatch that out of our hands? Paul desires believers to be fully convinced of the hope they have. And this means that we must also be fully convinced of the riches of our glorious inheritance. Otherwise, we have nothing to hope for. And now as we see today, Paul wants us to be fully convinced of God's power to preserve and keep us until we acquire the full possession of our inheritance. What good is a Christian who does not have hope? As I said, he's miserable. He's useless. What good is hope if we have nothing to hope for? We can't have hope unless we are convinced of our inheritance. And what good is an inheritance if the world, the flesh, and the devil can keep us from obtaining it? It's useless. Paul says, the immeasurable greatness of God's power is in fact at work in our lives and for us. Hamilton summarizes it this way. Unlimited, exceeding power is toward or in these Ephesian believers. Power enabling them to overcome temptation like Joseph. Power to resist the pressure to compromise. Power to cope with blasted hopes. Power to overcome indwelling sin. And power to persevere to the end. Bloodied maybe, but still standing. We have power working in us and for us. What magnificent power. But, but, but is this power just reserved for, for the Ephesian saints? Hamilton goes on, it is vital to grasp that, that this power is not the possession of, of the favored few of some elite category of Christian. It is towards us who believe all Christians, however young or weak, have the same immeasurably great power acting for them and in them. Christians need to believe in and live in the good of this power and not be overwhelmed by the power of the enemies of the gospel or by their own variableness. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Nothing. Why? Because of this immeasurably great power working in us and for us. Dear friends, to be faithful Christian, we must understand this power working in and for us. 
And we need to be convinced of this power, not just intellectually, but we need to, we, we, we need to know experientially. We need to be convinced without a shadow of doubt. We, we need the, the, the eyes of our hearts to be opened to this magnificent truth. For if we are not convinced of this power working in and for us, we will not live as we ought. We will compromise. We will give in to temptation. We will fear Satan. We will refuse to fight. We won't be convinced that we will make it to receive our inheritance. And if we are not confident of that, we we won't have hope. So we will be miserable, joyless, bitter, unloving, apathetic, unproductive, nominal Christians. The vitality of our Christian walk is greatly connected to our understanding of God's power working in us and through us. And because Paul understands how essential this is, He prays that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of their hearts to understand this truth. And to press this home even more, Paul gives more information about this power. Just how powerful is this power that is working within us? How powerful is it? Well, first he tells us that this same power working in us resurrects from the dead. Verse 19, he says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Hamilton notes that the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power of Almighty God is the same power that is now toward us who believe. It is sin vanquishing, Satan defeating, death conquering power. By the way, we have experienced this power already. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that raised us from the dead spiritually. What does Paul say in Romans 6? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory or power of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christ was raised from the dead by the power of God and that same power raised us up spiritually from the dead to walk in newness of life. If you are a believer, you already know something of this resurrection power because you know that you did not change your own heart. You know that you could not have changed your own heart. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses and God snatched you out of that life and gave you a new heart and made you to walk in newness of life. Take comfort, Christian. That same power that raised Christ from the dead and that raised you from spiritual death is working in and for you at this very moment. Oh, dear friends, you know your hearts. You you know your wickedness before Christ. 
You know how evil you were, and you know how you did not seek after God, but God sovereignly rescued you, and He did not regenerate your heart and then leave you. That same Holy Spirit that regenerated your heart is still working in your heart at this very moment. That same power that changed your very nature is still working in your life at this very moment. This is significant. We often think God did a miraculous work in regenerating my heart. But now all of a sudden I'm alone. No. That same power that regenerated your heart is working toward your sanctification at this very moment. That is the greatness, the immeasurable greatness of God's power at work in your lives. But also, the same power working in us not only resurrects from the dead, but it is a power that can exalt. Paul goes on in verse 20. And it seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So the same power working in us is the power that not only raised Jesus from the dead, but also seated him at the right hand of the Father, a place of exaltation. If God's power can raise Christ from the dead and seat him in his physical body at, his, at the right hand of the Father, in the heavenly places, can He not preserve you and keep you until you reach glorification? This resurrecting, exalting power is more than sufficient to save us and sanctify us and comfort us and keep us faithful and lead us to the fullness of our glorious inheritance. But if that wasn't enough to comfort us, Paul adds more. Not only do we need to understand the, the immeasurable power that is working toward us who believe, but we need to understand Christ's power, who is the head of His church. You see, this is important to understand because what good is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards believers if there are others out there who are more powerful? If there's a power out there in this world that is more powerful than, than God's power working in us and for us, then we should be concerned. That would be no comfort to us. If Satan and his demons are more powerful than God, what good is God's power working in us? If there are rulers in our nation who are more powerful than the power working within us, then we will compromise and Christianity will fail. So listen to what Paul says. Paul says in verse 21 that Christ has been exalted. And then he goes on to say, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. That verse is just screaming sovereignty, power. Hamilton says, Jesus, not Caesar, rules and reigns. 
Whatever powers and authorities may yet arise in this world, every one of them is under Christ's rule and dominion. And this is what Jesus declared about Himself in the Great Commission. Matthew 28.18 All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. He is above every power and every authority in heaven and on earth, both now and for all eternity. We need not fear anything. Christ has been placed above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion. And this is astoundingly great news for believers. Why? Because what Paul says is that Christ uses this power and authority on behalf of the church. Verse 22, And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. All things were put under Christ's feet, and He was made head over all things to the church. So this authority and power is stated within the context of Christ's relationship to the church. But now we should pay attention to this. Not only do we have this power, this, this resurrecting power working within us, but, but now we have a sovereign ruler working on behalf of us. Sproul says, Christ enjoys His position as head over everything for the sake of the church. Not only is Christ at the most exalted position in the universe, He is there representing believers and governing the universe for their sake. Hamilton puts it this way, the cosmic enthronement and rule of Christ is not for His enjoyment alone. Christ exercises His cosmic sovereignty for the good of His church. That means you and I. Christ exercises His absolute power and authority for the good of believers. Christ, who who, who cares, He he does this for, 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 for Christians. Christians He cares deeply about. Paul says in verse 23 that the church is His body, the fullness of Him. This is amazing to consider. Christ uses His power and authority on behalf of the church which He considers to be His own body. If we are His body and He is sovereign, we are safe. We are secure. Dear friends, the the sovereign ruler of this universe considers us to be part of his own body and he exercises his power and dominion on our behalf. Contemplate that. And not only is the church his body, but it is also the fullness of him who fills all and all. Now Now what does that mean? Calvin puts it this way. He says that Christ does not regard himself as whole, until he is united with his body, the church. Now, not that he is actually lacking anything in and of himself, but that he chooses rather not to be regarded as whole until he as head is united with his body, the church. This is how he loves us and he cares for us. This is amazing to consider. 
And in light of these things, we, we, we should never feel powerless, no, no matter what our situation looks like on earth. Consider deeply the, these twin truths that we, that we learned here this morning. Number one, the, the same immeasurably great power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the Father is working in and for you at this very moment. You're not alone. But secondly, Christ is the head of the church and calls the church His own body, so much so that He regards Himself as incomplete in a manner of speaking until being united with the church. So this same Christ who is the, the head has, has been given all authority and power and He uses this authority and power on our behalf. How could we ever feel powerless? How could we ever feel defeated? How could we ever feel that we can't resist temptation? How could we ever feel that, that there's not enough power to, to save our marriages and to, to make them better? How could we ever feel there's not enough grace and power in our lives to, to help us raise our children for Christ? When we think that way, we are degrading what has been done for us. We are degrading the, the power of Christ who has been given all authority. We are degrading the Holy Spirit, which is God's power working in our lives by saying there's not enough power there. Our flesh is powerless. That is true. But there is exceedingly great power working in our lives to sanctify us and keep us, to advance His kingdom, to take us to, to the fullness of our glorious inheritance. The power is there, dear friends. The power has always been there ever since you have been a believer. The power is there. What we need is the Holy Spirit to remove those things that cause us to disbelieve this truth. And what we need is for the Holy Spirit to impress this truth upon our hearts and with such force that we believe it without a shadow of doubt. And that is precisely what Paul is praying for that these believers would know this power. So that no matter what the spiritual condition of Ephesus was, they were secure. They could resist temptation. They could live faithfully. They were strong enough to, to not recant their faith, not because of their own strength, but because of the power of God in their lives. And, and, and may this morning, the Holy Spirit open our eyes to this very truth. May He open the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we can't even comprehend the amount of power that is working in our lives. We can't, comprehend the, we can't comprehend the Holy Spirit's power at work to, to grow us, to sanctify us, to keep us righteous. Father, help us to understand this truth. That we may have joy and not defeated attitudes. Help us to understand this truth that, that, that we would not think that we, we have to give in to temptation. 
but that we would be able to resist. Help us to understand this truth, that we would never compromise our faith in fear of what others may do or think. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.